Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Welcome to the Magic Book Club podcast where we chat to your favourite authors and get behind what really makes them put pen to paper. This week, we are joined by Stephanie Robel. Born and raised in the suburbs of Chicago, Stephanie spent her childhood writing short stories before going to college for strategic communication many jobs, two cross-Atlantic moves and an MFA programme later, The Recovery of Rose Gold was born. The Recovery of Rose Gold follows the story of mother and daughter Patty and Rose Gold Watt as they struggle with Rose Gold's mysterious illnesses, a discovery that rocks both their worlds and what comes after. Um, This is thrilling and scary. It's (laughs) scary. Stephanie, welcome to the Magic Radio Book Club podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, right. Now, um, this book... um, Yes, I. it's one of those books that I started reading and it has a kind of momentum of its own because you know exactly that this is going to turn out badly. You don't know how, but it is going to and there's this simmering tension right from the start. Where did this idea come from? Sure, so... Without telling us... without. I mean, there's so many twists and turns, but, I mean, you know, without telling us the entire plot, where did it come from? Sure, so I won't give anything away, but... Um, so the mother in the story has Munchausen by proxy, and for those who don't know, that's when a caregiver fakes or induces illness in the person they're caring for, which is usually a child. And so I first heard about Munchausen by proxy from my best friend, who's an elementary school psychologist, And she has experience with the syndrome through the work with some of her students and their parents. And so she described it to me, and I was immediately horrified and riveted. And I went down this rabbit hole of research. And I was shocked to find that the perpetrators are usually women and often mothers. You know, we think of the mother-child bond as sacred, but it's not in these cases. And I wanted to explore why that was. Um. It's it's a it's a really terrifying thing. Um, and uh, did you did you know where this plot was going to go right from the start, or did it sort of evolve? Did you know how bad it was going to get? <laughs> it was always going to be quite bad, starting with that as a premise. But did you know how bad it was going to get when you started writing? Yes. So the first version of the story was actually uh, completely different. And so I ended up throwing the entire thing away and just keeping the two main characters, Patty and Rose Gold, and starting again with a different premise, uh, which is after Patty gets out of prison. Um, And so I knew from the once I had decided on that storyline, I knew how it was going to end. I knew the character developments that I wanted to take place uh, specifically with Rose Gold and so from there, it was just kind of filling in all the middle parts. How does she get from where she starts to where she finishes? There's, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's, there's this, this essential, this, this very primal bond that mothers and daughters are supposed to have that is broken on every level here. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it's not just kind of the horror of her own condition, which uh, uh, Patty as a mother, even as you start to read, has such a lack of understanding of where she is right from the beginning as, as she's released from prison. Her lack of knowledge about what she's been doing there is is incredible. Was that something that you found uh, was common in the research that you did is people's, you know, the mother's lack of understanding of what they've done, their part in it, and failing to resolve that. Yeah, so I think that's one of the most interesting things about the illness is this question of, like, how much are they aware of their wrongdoing? Do you know, do they know that they're lying or do they honestly think they're doing what's best for their child? And so that was kind of an issue I grappled with because I never really got a straight answer. I mean, on one hand, you think if you know enough that you're hiding what you're doing, then clearly you know you're doing something wrong. 
Um, but I do think there's a certain sense of just kind of ignoring the things that you don't want to acknowledge yeah. and lifting up and focusing on the things you do, which is that I'm the mother of the year. I'll do anything for my child. And just this definitely like a manipulation and lying is very common in anyone that has this disease. Um, we find that we find them both as well. So we find them both living together in this extraordinary situation. Um, uh, it feels like almost when you started writing it, because it's a sort of race to the finish, I guess. Um, uh, it feels like almost once you started writing this, you almost couldn't stop. It's got so much like sort of pace to it. Did you find yourself kind of writing and writing and writing? Going, oh my God, this is running away with me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's interesting because it's at its heart, I think it's a pretty simple storyline. Yeah. It's just these two women who want what they want and the things that they want are directly opposing. And so it kind of just has to be like who can one-up each other until one person finally like comes out on top. So, yes, in that sense, it, it did just kind of have a momentum of each of them trying to outwit each other. The um, And I think as well that the uh, the element which I thought was really interesting is how easy it is to lie. <laughs> like, how easy. And, and there are lots of people who tell lies in this book that, you know, you kind of have that crossroads of a moment kind of going, well, we could... We go that way. We're going to end up, Patty. We're going to end up doing that. And it's there's as there's so many incidences where you kind of go and you know, uh, and Rose Gold struggles with that herself as well. Sort of going, this is really this is really straightforward. I can do this as well, uh, which I think w- will ring true to many people, lots of people, mothers and uh, you know uh, everybody amongst us. Yeah, I've always found lying and liars just absolutely intriguing and fascinating because I can't and just do not have any grip on how to lie myself. Maybe that's why. I don't know. When I when I was Come a kid, on. I mean, little white lies like meant to spare people's feelings, but it just like really wouldn't occur to me to tell like a truly damaging lie, I guess. I don't think I'm good. I'm a good enough actor to get away with it. It's not like a morality like, oh, I'm just like so above it. But my my middle sister, when we were kids, she used to lie all the time about the stupidest things, just these little, and it was kind of like, why? You know, I just always think that impulse of like, Telling a lie that, I mean, of course, these lies have a lot of consequences, but just telling sort of inconsequential lies even, I just think that impulse is so interesting. It is, isn't it? Talking about you as a child then, because we know uh, that oh, there's images of you like with hordes of books and, and reading voraciously. Where did that come from? Were your parents, were there books everywhere in the house? I don't really know where it came from. I mean, my parents certainly always made a lot of books available. I wouldn't say we didn't have like bookshelves overflowing, but they were always really encouraging about going to the library. And, you know, there was this uh, reading program in school that was called Accelerated Reading. And they were always really encouraging, like, see if you can break the record. You know, it was not just get your 25 points, but like, see if you can get like more points than anybody else and actually ended up doing that. And so I think, I don't know, like reading for me has just always, for as long as I can remember, I've just always loved it. It wasn't something my parents had to push me into. It was just, I don't know. And did they have to snap you out of it? Sometimes they have to go, Stephanie, where, which, whose character, where, who are you <laughs> playing with this afternoon? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I was a really shy kid. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know how spacey I was, but I think they were, they were always just super encouraging of reading and writing and through my whole life. So. Did you write a story on a horse? <laughs> yes, I went through a serious horse phase <laughs> when I was like nine or ten. I mean, a really serious horse phase. I had like, for one Christmas, I got, you know, like the light plate switch. Like yeah. it had a horse painted on it. I had a horse calendar. Like it was very <laughs> severe. But anyway, so I wrote this 
this story um, that was like 100 pages, double space. So like for nine, that's kind of long. That's in- that's impressive. Now, from what I remember of the book, I haven't read it in a long time, but it was mostly like how I would organize the different horses in their stalls because <laughs> I'm also very type A and organized. So it, I'm not going to say it was a page turner, but <laughs> my parents in a real show of faith and confidence did actually send it out to a few agents. And so, yeah, even I know at nine, it's so adorable. Of course, everyone was probably like, mm, nice drive. Very, uh, they sent, you know, nice rejections, I'm sure, but it wasn't obviously of any quality. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I love the ambition. I love the ambition, <laughs> you know. You've got it. You've got it as a parent. You have to support that, haven't you? Uh, so this, this obviously, regardless of what you sort of meandered through your sort of teenage years and early 20s, you were going to come back to creative writing at some point. Um, and uh, Emerson College in Boston was where you ended up. How was that? Yeah, so that was amazing. I mean, that that was how this story, this book came to be. So it was really during a period of unemployment that I was, you know, I decided to give novel writing a try and to apply to MFA programs. Um, before that, I just kind of thought, mm, nobody makes a living as a novelist, or very few people do. It didn't seem very practical. And so during this period, I just kind of felt like, well, I have nothing to lose at this point. Um, And so I went to Emerson and I went in with the goal of I want to come out of this with a finished novel. And Rose Gold was my thesis. So I was like, if nothing else, I'll get my graduate degree. And then on the advice of a few professors, they said, I think you should send it to some agents. And so I did that and then signed with my agent and then she took it out. What what was it about the course then, do you think, that sort of sparked... Um, um, that kind of focused your attention on on producing such a quality piece of work. What what was it about the teaching? Was it something that ignited your imagination on the course? How did they how did they draw that out of you? I think it was a few things. One was internally just giving myself permission to take it seriously. Everyone else around me was taking their writing seriously, and that was the first time that it wasn't just something I was doing before work or just it didn't feel frivolous. And the other thing was I had a professor who became my mentor of sorts, and she she really shepherded me through from the time she read my application, she met me before I committed to the program, and then she was also my thesis advisor. So really she helped me write the entire book, you know, from chapter three on. She was there reading and giving me feedback and all the way through to the end. So it's really like thanks to her that this came to be what it is. It's interesting. I think uh, it's interesting um, uh, talking to a lot of female authors, especially uh, female authors at a certain point in in their career. Having that moment where you're allowed to take it seriously is a really significant moment. And being given the time and the space from looking from looking after everybody else, whether that's a husband or kids or, or parents or whatever, is being able to do that. It's, it's quite significant. It's quite common. Um, it's quite a common reaction, actually. Um, so the uh, the characters, uh, Rose Gold and Patty, um, you're at uh, Emerson in Boston. Can you do that? Can you do that? <laughs> Do it. I can't. I'm do not going to try. Do it. Do, do it. I sound like do a it. No, you don't. Park the car and have park a yacht. Park the car and have a yacht. <laughs> it's like reinforcing anyway. terrible stereotypes. <laughs> terrible stereotypes. It's like literally, like in Great Britain, we're like, if anyone's even like 200 miles from a Boston accent, we're like, oh my God. <laughs> um, uh, the uh, the characters, I know that you were, um, uh, that your, your a colleague had had experience, a friend had had experience of this. How fully formed were the characters when they came to you though um she said you said that she'd spoken to you about experience of um, munchausen's by proxy beforehand um were they were they characters that came out over a certain time or or were any of them were either of them very confident in your mind at the start 
No. So at the start, I mean, the cases that she saw were, thank God, much milder. It was more parents wanting their kids to be tested for different uh, mental health issues that they didn't need to be, yeah. that they didn't actually have. Um, but as far as my characters, I would say what I first did was built a general profile by researching real life cases and saying, okay, they the characters have to have these, these, and these traits. And then from there, kind of flushing out. Okay. I think Patty came much quicker. I don't know what that says about me, but you know, her <laughs> voice and sort of brassiness just came pretty quickly. I think it's closer to my natural writing voice. But Rose Gold took a while, just yeah. the character development and the voice, because you know, she doesn't have the same pop culture references and colloquialisms and stuff that we do when we've grown up around other people. She's been isolated her whole life. So that definitely took a lot more practice some of the she's so brutal patty is she's so brutal and you know this just some of the some of the phrases that she uses you know to describe um at rose gold's figure when she's really skinny and when she's you know she's it's just so uh aggressive and brutal it takes some reading i've it left me with chills it really did was that i mean do you like the the genre of I'm going to loosely say mm-hmm. horror and thrillers, <laughs> but do you, did, have you enjoyed that in the past, reading uh, those kind of books and, and in that genre? Yes, so I'm especially like psychological thrillers or yes. suspense. I think why done it's more than who done it's. I mean, I love a good who done it too, but I've just always been really fascinated with why we do what yeah. we do, human motivation, behavior, etc. cetera. Uh, obviously, there's the Gone Girl. Um, uh, comparison, which got to be nice. That's got to be nice, right? <laughs> yes, but it's also so intimidating because I feel like any time a book compared, gets compared to Gone Girl, everyone goes, this is not the next Gone Girl, whatever. But yes, it's very flattering. <laughs> okay, you're listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. We're going to go behind the cover and ask the important questions and talk more with Stephanie after this. Um, okay, now listen, um, I think it will be really interesting as well because you strike me as an organised writer. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. I'm quite <laughs> scared of Stephanie. <laughs> um, so what happens when you sit down to write then? Where are you? What do you have to, do you have to prepare your environment or are you a, yeah, I can write on the train. If I've got five minutes here, I can grab five minutes here. So my ideal writing surroundings would be at home, it's quiet, and if I can grab like three or four hours, I like to work in long stretches better because it just takes a while to get into the world. And so to be doing it in 10-minute snatches for me is, I mean, I could if I had to, but I just prefer like a quiet, non-distracting environment. Do you sit at a desk? What's out of your window? Um, I, I only make myself sit at my desk if I'm procrastinating, but I like to sit on my couch. I just like to be as comfortable as possible because then I just feel like, okay, I can just focus on the writing, focus on the characters, and then out my window are just um, other buildings. I have a very busy street, so there's a lot of buses all the time. So I don't mind a little background noise as yeah. long as, you know, immediately surrounding me is quiet. Some dull white noise and yes. a comfortable settee. Exactly. And you're off for a few hours. Yeah. Okay. Um, this was, as you mentioned, was part of a thesis. Um, as well, when you're kind of writing a novel, there's the the imaginative world. Because it was part of an academic thesis was there was there a pressure for it to sort of hit any kind of marks academically as well was there another pressure that you might not have had if it was if it was uh, your second or third novel that you might be doing um i don't think so i mean sometimes you find with mfa programs in the states that they can be a bit snobbish about genre writing so that was my main concern when i came up with yes. the idea was yeah. were they going to say this is not literary enough but the 
professor that I mentioned that I worked with luckily doesn't have any sorts of reservations of that. She just likes a good story and great characters. Um, And so that didn't really hold me back at all. It was, I mean, if you finish your thesis and do a good job on it, it's not like they're going to withhold the degree from you. So I was was actually more worried about is it of high enough quality for an agent more so than the graduate program. And talking about that then, about is it a high enough quality, are you your... You're your, your harshest judge. Oh, of course. <laughs> My husband would be like, yes, a thousand times, yes. <laughs> I mean, once if it passes muster with me, it's like it's probably going to be, I mean, no one's going to laugh me out of the room if it gets to that point. So, And, and, and on that note then, so um, uh, what we, uh, we find a lot of is that as well is that, um, I mean, this has, got, this has got a very definite end. However, there is potential future. So we'll, you know, we'll see from you in a second whether or not there's more. But do you, uh, do you easily give this away? Or did the publishers, the agents, they have to grapple with you going, Stephanie, put it down. It's finished, girl. It's great. Leave it. And you're like, no, final edit, final edit. <laughs> um, I don't think so. So I, it's kind of, I guess I fall in the middle. So on one hand, yes, the tendency to want to make it perfect, even though that's not possible, is always there. But then on the other hand, I also find the longer I work on a project, the less excited I am by it. So there is this sort of sense for me of like trying to get it done and trying to work on it as much as I can, as quickly as I can, because once you don't feel excited about it anymore, I think that shows on the page. And so by the time Rose Gold was with my editors and we had gone through a couple rounds, once you especially start getting to, you know, copy edits or proofreading, you're just like, I don't want to see this anymore. I like never want to read this again. I could quite happily imagine a time when you don't want Patty or Rose Gold around. I really can. I really can. We've we've had enough. We can take yeah, take no more. Is it as a family? Did you say? I mean, this is this is your this is your first book. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a huge sense of achievement. You must have been so pleased. Was there a family dinner out? Was there some champagne had? Oh, there's plenty of champagne has been had. Plenty of dinners out. Yes, it was definitely a, a huge surprise. I was just hoping, you know, that some agent would want to take it on. Maybe like one publishing deal would be fantastic. So to get this kind of reception has been like literally unbelievable. <laughs> it's well, it's it is it's happened and it's real and it's fantastic. <laughs> and I've, I've, you know, I've had a, a fantastic time reading it. I mean, you also you write in a very cinematic way as well. You know, I can I can hear the soundtrack um, to some of I mean there's the, is there would you how would you feel about this being made into a movie it would have to be a 15 yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I mean I definitely I'm, I'm really interested in adapting it myself and in screenwriting so I think good that for would be... you is the correct answer <laughs> absolutely thank you who would do who would play Patty I always thought Kathy Bates would be like the perfect physical presence she's got that brassiness like that's who I yeah that's who I would say and Rose Gold I'm available. <laughs> um, I don't know if you're familiar. She's more up and coming, but her name is Julia Garner. She was in yes. Ozark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just think she can she can play both innocent and also just like a little evil, like so well. So I think like to make the different character developments, she would be perfect. It's time for Behind the Cover, where we ask our author to read us an extract of their new book that particularly resonates with them. Uh, so you are going to read us a little bit, Stephanie. It might be an introduction. It might be a piece of prose, some dialogue. Um, what are you going to choose for us, Stephanie? And where's which bit's it from? So I am going to read from the first chapter in the first section just to um, whet your appetite. Chapter 1. Patty. Day of release. My daughter didn't have to testify against me. She chose to. It's Rose Gold's fault I went to prison, but she's not the only one to blame. 
If we're pointing fingers, mine are aimed at the prosecutor in his overactive imagination, the gullible jury, and the bloodthirsty reporters. They all clamored for justice. What they wanted was a story. Get out your popcorn, because boy did they write one. Once upon a time, they said, a wicked mother gave birth to a daughter. The daughter appeared to be very sick and had all sorts of things wrong with her. She had a feeding tube, her hair fell out in clumps, and she was so weak she needed a wheelchair to get around. For 18 years, no doctor could figure out what was wrong with her. Then along came two police officers to save the daughter. Lo and behold, the girl was perfectly healthy. The evil mother was the sick one. The prosecutor told everyone the mother had been poisoning her daughter for years. It was the mother's fault the girl couldn't stop vomiting, that she suffered from malnutrition. Aggravated child abuse, he called it. The mother had to be punished. After she was arrested, the press swooped in like vultures, eager to capitalize on a family being ripped apart. Their headlines screamed for the blood of poisonous Patty, a 50-something master of manipulation. All the mother's friends fell for the lies. High horses were marched all over the land. Every lawyer, cop, and neighbor was sure they were the girl's savior. They put the mother in prison and threw away the key. Justice was served, and most of them lived happily ever after. The end. But where were the lawyers while the mother was scrubbing the girl's vomit out of the carpet for the thousandth time? Where were the cops while the mother poured over medical textbooks every night? Where were the neighbors when the little girl cried out for her mother before sunrise? Riddle me this. If I spent almost two decades abusing my daughter, why did she offer to pick me up today? It's a good start, isn't it? <laughs> um, okay, so uh, this is really nice. Um, we have got some listener questions. Is that okay? Yes, that's from, great. Uh, this is from uh, Instagram and um, Facebook. This is from Dee, who says, Hey, Stephanie, what kind of research did you do for the book? I'm always getting stuck in Wikipedia wormholes and can imagine how tempting it would be when researching this book. Yes, I love a good Wikipedia wormhole, so I'm guilty of that as well. But um, I started out by reading articles, and then I read a couple books. There was a memoir called Sickened by Julie Gregory. Uh, Julie's mother had Munchausen, and Julie was a survivor of her abuses. That was really helpful to read just to get a firsthand account. I also read a medical textbook um, on Munchausen and different variations of it. So I just really wanted to immerse myself, especially in the illness. And then, of course, there's all the smaller bits of research that you do. But I think you can do some of that as you go along and see what you need. Beth on Instagram says, sorry, I've got to ask this. Lol. Which you like better, the U.S. or the U.K.? <laughs> Clearly you're from the U.S., but I know that you live permanently in the U.K. now. <laughs> yes, that's such an unfair question. It's and ridiculous. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I can't, I can't pick one or the other. One is, they've both become home in different ways, but I really do love living in London. I've been here four years now, and it, it really feels like home just as much as my other home. Um, have you ever been to the uh, the huge library? The the what's the oh my god the British Library? Have you been to the British? Yes, yeah, I actually one. wrote some of the book. At, Did there. you? Yeah, it's yeah. such a great place. It's isn't so it? beautiful. Yeah, the library libraries have been very kind to me. I wrote the first half at the Boston Public Library and the second half at the British Library. I just find. It's really motivating and inspiring to be around all these books and it's nice and quiet there and you're noticing a pattern. Um, it's just, it's nice to, when I'm really like having trouble focusing to get out of the house and just go to the library and get to work. There's our big up for libraries. <laughs> we love them. Uh, Kathy says, uh, did you always know how you wanted the book to end? Yes. So I think for me, as far as plotting twists go, it's a lot easier if you know where you have to go than if you have to retroactively fit all of your chapters beforehand. Okay, now uh, we can't let you go without asking you the important questions. The important questions. 
Okay, we're almost at the end of our time with Stephanie today. Uh, So the important questions are, question number one, and we ask this of all our fabulous authors, if you could have written any book in history, what would it be? Yes, this is a this is a big question. It's a huge question. It's a huge question, but I think my answer is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. I love that book. It's such a good book. I think just to claim Mrs. Danvers alone would be incredible, the sinister housekeeper, but also, you know, the setting is so foreboding. Uh the eponymous character is not even in the book, but she's so in the book. The twists and turns, I just feel like it's the perfect psychological film. What's the house called? Uh, Manderley. Manderley. Manderley, Manderley. You could see it burning in the distance, in the glow, couldn't you, when he comes racing back? Yes. Oh, it's a great great book. You know what's really lovely about asking that question as well is that I'm now writing a list of all the books I want to go back and read, Mm. which is really cool. Okay. Well, does that inform the second question, which is if you could be any character in a book, who would you be and why? Yeah, so I struggled with this one because I was looking through all my favourite books and Typically, pretty terrible things happen in them, so I don't think I'd want to be a character in those. So, But I did find, I love this book, uh, Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It's about this band, and Daisy Jones is the frontman, front woman. Uh, but I would want to be Karen, who is the keyboardist, because she's super confident and sure of herself. She gets to live a life of like full creative expression, but she's not the face of it. I think being the face would be terrible. So she gets to live this like very fulfilling life, but also just kind of like make her quips in the background. That's it. It's so true, isn't it? So many, so many great heroines or so many great characters just have terrible endings, and you know, it's like yeah. if you could choose, you don't want right. to do that, do you? Yeah, I mean, Daisy Jones has a drug problem, and you know, so <laughs> I think I'd skip all of that and just try to be more grounded. Um, And finally, if you could only read one book for the rest of your life, what would it be? So I think I would have to go with a book that I enjoyed but really challenged me so that in future rereadings I could keep learning from it. So I'm thinking The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy because I read that book and it's just beautifully written. But I think on future readings, I would just continue to pick up more and more from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you would, you would, Struggle to get tired of that. Yes, I think. exactly. Um, Stephanie, it's lovely to meet you, and I can, like I said before, I feel like we're going to hear lots and lots and lots more from you. Um, well done with the book; it terrified me to within an inch of my life. I love those <laughs> characters; it's really good. Um, and uh, we, you know, we wish you all the luck oh, in the future. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Magic Book Club podcast. Until next time, happy reading! And if you've enjoyed this episode, remember to rate and subscribe. 